0: This is Healthcare Strategies. This podcast was recorded remotely due to the coronavirus pandemic. As a result, the quality may be a little lower than our usual standards. We appreciate your patience as we practice social distancing. From all of us at Intelligent Healthcare Media, stay healthy, stay safe, and enjoy the latest episode of Healthcare Strategies.
1: Hello and welcome to Healthcare Strategies. My name is Kelsey Waddell and I'm the editor of Healthcare Intelligence. Health plans by and large were not required to waive cost sharing for coronavirus treatments as they were required to waive cost sharing for coronavirus testing. However, as of November 2020, seven in 10 enrollees in individual and fully insured group health plans were in a plan that had covered cost sharing for coronavirus treatment. According to the Peterson Kaiser Family Foundation Health System Tracker. Many of those waivers were extended into early 2021. In March and April of 2021, however, we had a couple of payers formally end or consider ending their coronavirus treatment cost sharing, reportedly the first to do so in the nation. Now, at least two of those have since backtracked and reinstated those waivers. However, that attempt raises questions about the wisdom of introducing cost-sharing for coronavirus treatments, which would leave members exposed to higher out-of-pocket spending. So, when, if ever, is the right time to expect patients to shoulder some of that financial burden for coronavirus treatment, and what are the implications of the answer to that question for healthcare spending across the industry? Joining us today to discuss this development is Dr. A. Mark Fendrick, Director of the University of Michigan Center for Value-Based Insurance Design and Professor in the Division of General Medicine, Department of Internal Medicine, and Department of Health Management and Policy at the University of Michigan. Mark is credited with coining the term value-based insurance design. He has authored over 250 articles and book chapters on the subject and has received numerous awards for his creation and implementation. Mark is also an elected member of the National Academy of Medicine, formerly IOM, and he serves on the Medicare Coverage Advisory Committee and is the co-editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Managed Care. Just to name a few of his roles. Mark will share with us the implications of the payer's temporary decision to reinstate COVID treatment cost-sharing. What payers should be looking for when weighing whether to end their COVID treatment cost-sharing waivers and most importantly, the role of value-based care in all of this.
0: Thank you, Mark, for coming on today to, to discuss this.
2: So happy to be here, Kelsey. Thanks for having me.
0: Um, so I was curious when you heard about the Blue Cross Blue Shield company's decision to end cost sharing waivers, um, which obviously got rolled back. But when you first heard about that decision, what went through your mind? What did you think about that choice? And more broadly speaking, do you think it's the right time to be shifting some of that financial responsibility back to plan members?
2: So you can imagine, as someone who's devoted well over 20 years to enhance access and affordability to essential services, we were thrilled to see the policies that go beyond the federal mandate to cover COVID testing and vaccine at 100% to extend it to COVID-related disease care. So now that all good things must come to in the end, if I could show you my sad face emoji, uh, this was very disappointing to hear that given that it's been immensely popular and uh, hopefully removing some barriers from people who might be worried about getting the care they need for this horrendous pandemic. So it it had been my hope a little bit maybe to a half glass full that the popularity of removing cost sharing for a high value service like COVID ED treatments and hospitalizations would extend on our 20-year run to try to do that for other chronic disease services like insulin for diabetes and mental health, behavioral therapy and and treatments for HIV. Uh, Sadly, it seems like uh, there's lots of news about these waivers going away. And it's my hope that people would listen that if it is the cost that's driving these decisions that we could pay for all of these waivers if we had the courage to finally go after the hundreds of billions of dollars we spend in the United States on clinical services that don't make Americans any healthier.
0: Yeah. You just touched on this a little bit, but what factors do you think are at play in this decision for payers? What should they be considering when they assess whether or not to end these cost-sharing waivers for coronavirus treatment? And obviously from your perspective, what are the factors that they should be weighing that say you should definitely continue these cost-sharing waivers or make something more permanent here?
2: Well, first off, Americans don't care about healthcare costs the way your listeners do. They care about what it costs them. And we've demonstrated, you know, the very simple thing that my mother said 25 years ago. I can't believe you had to spend a million dollars to show that if you make people pay more for something, they'll buy less of it. And if you think about things like COVID ED treatments and hospitalizations or the other high value services that we've been pursuing more generous coverage on for decades, these are services that are not overused. These are services, in fact, that if you put any barrier in front of people, financial or otherwise, they're less likely to use them. Uh, Thus, our argument for what we call clinically nuanced cost sharing, that instead of a blunt instrument, like a deductible per se, that we actually make it easy for Americans to get the care they know that will improve their health, but pay for them by deterring the care that we're buying in the billions that is really not helping them. And then some situations harming them. So I, I completely understand the turmoil of 2020 and the reports of health plans, what they're dealing with. Obviously expenditures were less, they're going to have to apply some rebates to the fact that overall spending was down, but as the resurgence of not only COVID care across the country, sadly, but also the pent up demand for the services that were not provided that were clinically needed during the pandemic lead to some type of you know, financial chaos, let alone the clinical chaos we're seeing in our practices. So I try to be a little bit turning a silver lining on this by saying there's more than enough money in the system, there always has bid. And in fact, that uh, this could be the time for us to reallocate the dollars by you know stealing from low value care Peter to pay high value care Paul. And I think the example of finding funding to continue this generous coverage of COVID-related treatment would be a really good example uh, to extend on other similar policies, say, such as copay limits on insulin, which is quite prevalent now in many states, and the essential aspect of the Medicare Part D senior savings plan.
0: Yeah. And and on that note, kind of diving into the value-based side of this, which is, I know, your passion. First of all, what have we been seeing in terms of low-value wasteful spending that has emerged around coronavirus treatment that payers and providers should be focusing on eliminating? And then I'd love to talk about other value-based care payment models that can be implemented going forward to resolve that. But first, what are some of those low-value wasteful spending areas that have emerged?
2: So to extend on this silver lining view, so a year ago this quarter, we saw dramatic reductions in both high-value care and low-value care. And while I, I don't have details, and many of us are studying this to see how we have, in fact, emerged from the pandemic, it was my hope, and I wrote in multiple editorials to anyone who would listen, this is the opportunity to actually spend more on those services that have been used in quality metrics for decades to increase reimbursements and to lower cost sharing, understanding this makes actuaries and CFOs crazy if you're on the payer side and providers very happy that volume would increase. The point that makes this so poignant to me is that all these increases expenditures on preventive services, chronic disease services, even end of life palliative care, that all cost money could be paid for without any increases in premiums or any increases in deductibles that I call a tax on the sick. But, But clearly if we had the courage to go after those services that professional societies now for years and the US Preventive Services Task Force denotes in their D ratings, things that we should not do. But as Upton Sinclair said in his famous book, The Jungle about the Chicago Stockyards, it's difficult to get a man to understand something if his salary depends on him not understanding. So to get to this reallocation, I think we really need to focus on three things. First is continue to drive alternative payment models to make sure that people make lots of money by doing those things that make Americans healthier, And shut off the spigot of the payment on those things that we know that don't. Second, which is the second silver lining of the pandemic is that we leverage all the advances in telemedicine, electronic health records and wearables to continue to allow that patients to have access to these services and hopefully again reduce the use of the things that they don't need. And the third, which is the least important but where i focused because kind of makes the red redder is to not only focus on the provider side like most of the discussions do but also align this clinically driven movement with the patients that instead of having these blunt instruments on cost-sharing, meaning the people pay same out-of-pocket for the good stuff and the bad stuff, but to set up a benefit design that makes it easy, not hard, for patients to get the things they need, like insulins and screenings and COVID care, in my opinion, when clinically indicated, but make it hard for people to get the things they may want or think more is better, but are really not adding to their patient-centered outcomes. And the good news is we've done some actual experiments showing that benefit designs can be built in such a way that we can make things like COVID care and insulin no cost sharing for patients and not have to raise premiums or raise deductibles, but just consider non-covering or covering less generous things like vitamin D screening for the total population, back surgery when it's not needed, or an expensive CT or MRI scan for patient with a run-of-the-mill non-urgent musculoskeletal back pain. So it's all about We have enough money in the system. We should just spend it more on the good stuff and less of the bad stuff. And let's let the debate begin.
0: (laughs) Excellent. One of the things that emerged that was interesting about the conversation on a public scale around protecting members from high healthcare costs during this time is there was a lot of explicitly public pressure. And while the payer industry and the healthcare industry at large has been increasingly driven by consumerism, this took on a very almost universal kind of call for greater coverage for these necessary services. And so I was wondering if you think that this time period has changed anything about the relationship between payers and the healthcare system at large, but I'm thinking mostly about payers in this situation, and the public will, and long-term, if we will see the public will continue to shape and influence what payers do and don't cover in a much more tangible and obvious way as it did during the coronavirus pandemic.
2: So, really insightful question. So we have been making incremental progress over two decades primarily with the private sector thoughts around spending our healthcare dollars better. Uh, There's lots of forces and there's lots of winners and losers. And before you invited me on, many of your listeners probably never heard of value-based insurance design before. But if you are in the healthcare delivery space, you are aware of our most important policy accomplishment, which is the very small section of the ACA that mandates now over 80 services that are designated by the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, the CDC, and HRSA, that must be covered 100 percent, predeductible and no caution. This small section is immensely popular, has huge bipartisan support, and who would be against free shots for kids, free pap smears, mammograms, and colon cancer screening, and now up to 50 more important preventive services that are now made available at no cost. Again, most people don't know that it was this section of the ACA section 2713 that was amended to make COVID vaccines and testing free. So the fact that if you're a payer and you're seeing a high value service is not only being delivered free to your beneficiaries but you don't have to pay for it all, everybody loves Everybody loves the fact that we all get our COVID vaccines for free. An important message that we've been saying for decades is that even when you make high value stuff free doesn't mean that everyone gets them. This holds true not only for COVID vaccines, Kelsey, but it holds true for preventive services that are then long on the list. But the big difference between COVID vaccine, no cost sharing, and COVID treatment, no cost sharing, is the government decided to pick up the tab for the former and the typical payers have picked up the ladder and someone has to pay for them. So I not that I have a huge amount of simpatico for the payers, because A, they spent far less last year than they intended to in 2020. No one has any idea what's going to happen in 2021. But there are other levers, I think, that could be pulled as opposed to the idea of restoring typical plan designs, particularly for the underserved populations that are hardest hit by COVID. And it worries me that they will not seek the care they need and potentially perpetuate this pandemic that so many of us are longing to put into our rearview mirror.
0: Zooming out for a minute, you and I talked back in 2020, which feels like a lifetime ago, about the opportunities to advance value-based care during and after a crisis, more specifically, obviously, during the context of the coronavirus pandemic. And I remember that you particularly emphasized that now is the time for payers, as you just said, to find and cut out wasteful healthcare spending, and so I was wondering, what do you think of the nation's progress in value-based care since then? And, and you know, have we moved forward? Have we fallen behind? How are we doing?
2: So value-based care is this great term that no one knows the answer to. You have to go to the top of a very high mountain and ask someone to give you the set definition. But as long as value is a fraction of health and cost, I think we're making reasonable headway on value in general. What is very poignant about this movement for me is someone who had been advocating to enhance access to high value services, which a lot of evidence shows enhances also equity and reduces disparities because of the maldistribution of high and low value care among Americans is that we're making headway in terms of those situations where we make things more accessible, the people who need them most are getting them. But this has not stopped the prevalence of high deductible health plans. And deductibles are the ultimate blunt instrument that makes it difficult for people to get both high and low value care. And it's been long, my opinion, that no matter how much you incent me or my clinician providers to get my patients to do what we know is right for them, a good example is that is an eye exam for diabetic, which has been a quality metric for over 20 years. It turns out with the growth of deductibles and health plans that the coverage for an eye exam in the United States in 2021 is actually worse than when I first started studying in 1987. And everyone agrees that this is a high value service. Most value-based contracts for primary care folks are tied to how well I do with my patients to get care like an eye exam for a diabetic or a certain medication adherence or following up with certain types of protocols. So I have long argued that We need to provide providers incentives around quality. I think that's moving forward at a reasonable clip. I call payment or provider facing aspects peanut butter, but to make it really work, you have to align patients in that same way, uh, which I call patient facing initiatives jelly. And it shouldn't surprise you or my 87 year old mother that when you align providers and patients to do the right thing, More of them will do that than if you do either one alone or none of them. So pieces of the value-based care pie, value-based payment, moving forward. We're seeing increasing numbers of contracts that are based on clinical outcomes, thank goodness, as opposed to volume. We are also seeing increases in value-based insurance design. We were extraordinarily pleased to see that... uh, a rule that we worked on for over 10 years to allow health savings account qualified high deductible health plans to cover certain chronic disease services pre-deductible. We're taken up by 50% of jumbo firms over 5,000 and almost 30% of firms over 200 employees as reported by the 2020 Kaiser Family Foundation employer survey. So I think people are seeing that this bluntness of just saying January 1st comes around you have to pay $1,000 out of pocket before your insurance kicks in. Understanding that 40% of Americans don't have $400 in the bank, uh, there's a rub there. So I, th- I was hopeful that the popularity of the COVID VBIT policies would extend to additional non-COVID services. In fact, you know, my sad face emoji is illustrated by the fact that instead of moving forward with beyond insulin and COVID care, we're actually falling back to the status quo uh, for reasons that are largely financial. And I'm hopeful that all listeners of this fabulous podcast can understand there are other ways that we could provide coverage, generosity and the previous administration asked us to design a cost neutral template that made certain services that are high value, lower cost. We don't have COVID on the list, but we would have and pay for them dollar for dollar not by raising premiums or deductibles but reducing expenditures on low value care. Uh, we call this VBIT X because it was designed for the exchanges or the individual marketplace. But uh, some people have called this cost neutral VBIT design the second coming, in the fact that uh, the early VBIT classic, which just made high value services less expensive like COVID care, they did cost more because people use them more often. But as I said earlier, if we could rob low value care Peter to pay high value care Paul, and I know we can, I think that's important. And one, since you asked specifically, just in the last two months, two of the top 10 largest employers in the United States, the Office of Personnel Management, which oversees federal employees, and the Department of Defense through the TRICARE program, in both of their carrier letters for 2022, they make explicit comments about plans and plan sponsors holding their providers accountable for the measurement and reduction of low value care. So, you know, I'm allowed as always to be the Tigger in the 100 acre wood and be optimistic that we'll be able to move more nuanced programs forward and get rid of these blunt instruments. Uh, so, we'll just keep fighting the fight and hopefully we'll be able to push back on the policies that you and I are concerned about, thus removing barriers to COVID care.
0: Well, thank you so much again, Mark, for, for coming on. And thank you for your insights. Thank you. And for our listeners, we'd love to hear your thoughts about this episode. Feel free to reach out to us at podcasts at ExtelligentMedia.com, that's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-S at ExtelligentMedia.com to share your thoughts. You can also use that email to let us know if there are any healthcare industry related questions or stories you would like us to consider covering. And if you liked this episode and it sparked some thoughts for you, please head over to Apple and give us a few stars and a positive review. Thank you for listening. This has been an Extelligent Healthcare Media production.